Hi, I'm Iris Muller. I'm a certified rehabilitation counselor and a proud mom of two children, one of whom has quadriplegic cerebral palsy and is nonverbal. And I'm Alma Schneider, a licensed clinical social worker and the proud mom of four children, one of whom has Prader-Willi syndrome. In this podcast, we discuss the uncensored truth about raising kids with disabilities. Prepare to laugh, cry, and hopefully learn something new. This is Two Moms No Fluff. everybody, this is Two Moms No Fluff, the podcast in which we discuss the answers or truth about raising kids with disabilities. And today, surprisingly, we're not two moms here, it's just one mom, me, Iris Meller, and my colleague Alma Schneider is not here. But instead of her, I'm going to interview her beautiful, amazing, smart daughter, Ayla Salzman, who's here with us. Ayla, hello. Hello, everyone. I'm so happy to be here. Iris, thank you for having me. Yes, I'm I'm very, very excited. This episode is going to be a continuation of our discussion about siblings and siblings of children with disabilities more specifically. And Ayla, do you mind introducing yourself so everybody that is listening or watching our podcast can hear who you are? Of course. Well, hi, everyone. I'm Ayla. Alma Schneider is my mother. I am 21. I just graduated from American University, got my bachelor's in Spanish studies with a minor in art history. Um, My younger brother, Lincoln, has Prader-Willi syndrome, um, among many other amazing attributes and qualities, Um, but I am one of four children, and I was raised in Montclair, New Jersey. Um, Don't know if we say where we're from. Um, (laughs) Um, yeah, so I'm 21. I am moving to Spain in a few months to teach English to elementary students. And yeah, I think that's pretty much it. That's, that's yes. I, I, I just want to mention that I have a familiarity with you that is much more than just being a, my friend's daughter. Because uh, Ayla, for those who do not know from previous episodes, uh, we had the pleasure of having Ayla as an aide and a tutor for my daughter, Karen, who has quadriplegic cerebral palsy and is nonverbal. And Ayla, in my mind's eye, is the role model of inclusion, kindness, good-heartedness, and uh, the ability to be Uh, both an advocate and a friend for the disability community and one of those young people you who you can look up to and hope for a better future for humanity. So Ayla, it's a great, great honor to have you here today and I'm really uh, excited to be able to interview you. Oh my gosh, the honor is all mine. Uh You are the most wonderful mother. It has been just such an amazing part of my upbringing to work with Karen and become so close with your family and you are such an incredible person and I'm just so happy to be here talking with you. Thank you, thank you. So uh, Ayla, do you mind describing Lincoln in your own words for people who do not know him personally? Of course, I mean, I know that this podcast is obviously education around disabilities but also debunking a lot of misconceptions and stereotypes that are related to raising a child or being in a family or being close to someone who has a disability. I mean, yeah, from a practical standpoint, Lincoln has Prader-Willi syndrome, so he has a lack of connection 
between his brain and his stomach, causing this very insatiable hunger. Um, but that's, you know, just, as I said in my introduction, that's just this one specific piece of his identity and the way that I was raised and the way that Lincoln's disability was incorporated into my understanding of him as I was growing up. I mean, Lincoln just is my brother. He is incredibly bubbly and caring. As I was growing up, he was always like the favorite amongst all of my friends. Everyone would always call him smiley. He was just this really happy, just smiley, wonderful, vibrant little boy. And he's grown into just the sweetest, most caring, wonderful young man. He's incredibly passionate and motivated. He is very, very focused on helping others. Um, ever since he was really, really young, he was very passionate about providing support and care for displaced persons um, amongst a variety of other populations, marginalized people. He's a big activist and advocate for um, disability rights and a lot of other really important topics. And he is just the, the sweetest, most wonderful brother. And we are incredibly close. And yeah, he's just amazing. I would just describe him as this ball of, love and energy and warmth. Um, and he happens to have Prader-Willi syndrome amongst all of those qualities. Wow. Ayla, um, can you maybe describe how your family life when you were growing up, how that was maybe different than the families of other children uh, that you grew up nearby? Yes, of course. I mean, I think just to start off the misconception that I mean, also I'm coming from a position of a brother with a specific disability. I think that, you know, that spectrum can really range based on how significant or specific or intense the needs are of the child, um, whether that be like physical needs, emotional support. Um, in, in my personal perspective, I, th I think that, you know, every family is bringing something to the table. Every family has really significant differences and you know, just because Lincoln having him as a brother or my parents having him as a son, just because he had these really specific needs, that didn't mean that we had differences in a way that my other friends' families didn't. I remember growing up and hearing things that my friends were going through with their families and being so surprised or shocked or, just in disbelief. Um, and so I think it's all so incredibly relative how you define different. And I think that's been a big theme in this podcast as well, understanding how it's so subjective and you know everyone has these specific areas of power or weaknesses or differences. But in my family specific situation, I think as I got older, Lincoln's syndrome definitely became more relevant. One, because he was growing old, like bigger and stronger. Uh, he had more agency and individuality and he had more space. Um, but it was also because my parents, as we were growing up, very much made it this foundational goal that our family's dynamic would not be centered around the fact that Lincoln had like quote unquote something wrong with him or something different about him. And so I remember like for a, a long time while I was growing up, Obviously, we understood that Lincoln had some different needs, but 
my parents didn't even communicate or define those needs as the specific syndrome until I was maybe a young, like 10 years old or something in that age range. And so um, I, I just always kind of thought of it as my family and Lincoln was specifically hungry and, and there were certain things that we would do in my household that maybe weren't done in other households. And as I got older, those became a little bit more strict or defined. Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't, none of my friends had padlocks on their kitchen. That's definitely one notable <laughs> thing. I think the tantrums are definitely something that I, I was experiencing with with Lincoln that were not things my friends were going through, but it's also interesting because I think you know I'm I'm able to identify and point out these aspects that were quote unquote different, but it's relative because I didn't think of anything as different until people outside of my family were stepping in and looking at things from this exterior perspective and being surprised or a little confused or having questions. And so I think my idea of how my family is different, you know, partially came from either having stepped away myself and realized that the world doesn't operate the way that it did in my house growing up. And also just people outside of my family commenting or witnessing or just acting as like outside viewers of my family's dynamic and differences could be pointed out that way. Because for me, my childhood was completely normal in the context of my childhood, if that makes sense. Um, yeah. yeah, definitely notable differences and things that are clearly able to be pointed out as I've gotten older, but things that didn't feel different at the time, just like, yeah, specific structure around food, um, learning how to padlock a kitchen door, use the Ziplocs, all of those gadgets at a younger age in high school and even in middle school, understanding how to calm my brother down from a really intense aggressive tantrum, um, being you know hyper aware and conscious and protective in a way that maybe other siblings weren't conditioned to do or feeling responsible to do with their siblings. Um, I think that, you know, a lot of just inherent qualities that you have when you're an older sibling get really amplified if you have a sibling who has, not even an older sibling, because my younger siblings experience this as well, but those qualities of protection and care and love and coziness that all gets really enhanced if you have a sibling who has a disability. So I think those are definitely some ways that my household has been, I don't even want to say unique, but I guess just, just different. Wow. Ayla, I, I want to kind of expand on this a little bit and to ask you, in what ways do you think uh, being a sibling to Lincoln specifically shaped uh, the adult that you are today? Uh, can you explain a little bit about that and uh, also maybe in what ways you find yourself maybe different than other young people your your age or your age group yeah definitely I mean I think it's really funny how many things I didn't realize until I really started to you know when I got to college um I think that's when I, the differences and the the special qualities um, or this or that started to kind of 
I was able to see things from a little bit more of an outside perspective, ways that, you know, having more of this caretaker role in my upbringing affected my maturity and my empathy and also my patience. Um, but I think, yeah, having a sibling with a disability has really deeply shaped who I am in really positive ways and in ways that I've also identified I need to work on and I need to, to expand on and understand and unpack a little bit and grow out of or um, just study a little bit more and be a little bit kinder to myself about. I think first off, just from a professional standpoint, having a sibling with a disability, I definitely have gravitated very strongly towards jobs with children who have a variety of significant disabilities as we have talked about. I have done a lot of work with your daughter. Um, I have done work with other children with Prader-Willi syndrome. I have worked with a lot of children with Down syndrome. And I think that that area of jobs and of caretaking, I've always appreciated and felt very safe in um, because it was very reminiscent of being home and feeling purposeful. There's always this kind of meditative quality because you can't overthink or be in your head or be overly stressed about anything in your individual life because you have to be so focused on your job. Um, so I think professionally, you know, having a sibling with a disability has really affected, you know, the, the jobs that I've gravitated towards. Also in relationships, I've definitely noticed habits. I'm currently dating someone and I'm seeing so many interesting um, attributes that I have that I think really do stem from having a sibling with a disability. I'm seeing those emerge and I'm seeing how those are nurtured and appreciated and um, loved by someone who is respectful and passionate and empathetic. Like I, I think that I, growing up, have always, as I've said a few times already, I've definitely taken on this caretaker role. And I think the way that that translates into relationships is really fascinating because I have to feel like I am caring as deeply as possible in order to feel like I'm being a sufficient partner. Um, and that's not realistic or sustainable. And you know, there's such a beauty in that, but it's also important for that to be reciprocated. And I think that I'm really, as I'm getting older and I'm not like a little high school kitty anymore, you know, I'm really learning how to balance my ingrained feelings of needing to always be the caretaker with the way that I'm deserving of also being taken care of. Um, I think also in friendships, I'm definitely, it's very important to me that my friends feel safe and protected and comforted by me. Um, and I think same with my family, definitely. I think, you know, having a brother with a disability has made me very, very mature starting at a very young age. I was obviously exposed to a lot of events and experiences that a lot of other children may not have had the same exposure to. And that's not a bad thing. That's just the reality of my childhood. And once again, that didn't feel wrong or disruptive. It was my experience growing up and my experience with my loving and attentive family it was also just having a brother who had these needs that made me experience life in a specific way. But, you know, I think having been challenged at a young age and shown the need to 
stand up and be resilient and be passionate and patient and show a lot of unconditional love to the people that I value. I think that has really played into the way that I love and appreciate and take care of the people in my life. It's definitely made me more thoughtful and sensitive to people's feelings. I think it's made me love very unconditionally and that's a very positive thing, but you know, that can also come with downsides because I don't always have the ability to recognize my own boundaries and know when to take a step back and be kind and attentive to myself because my focus is always being so loving and attentive to the people around me. And that's something that I am definitely working on. Um, and that's been a very successful journey but yeah, I think it's shaped me in very, very positive ways. And I'm definitely seeing a lot of those ways play out now. Um, but yeah, professionally, romantically, in my friendships, in my family settings, and also just in my own identity, um, recognizing a lot of the effects of having a sibling with a disability on my growth and development, for sure. Um. Ayla, you know that uh, both uh, Alma and I, in our conversations with parents, there is always a discussion about uh, having another child after having a child with a disability and what would be the effect of having a, a child with a disability on the typically developing uh, sibling. Uh, you have a different perspective because uh, A, you're now an adult and B, uh, you, you were there in that equation even before Lincoln was born. So can you please share a little bit from your insight about the, you know, your thoughts about, uh, about the sibling's life and what parents can do to kind of maybe balance the equation when they have one child that requires a lot, a lot of care and uh, maybe modifications and attention and the other siblings who are typically developing, can you maybe share some of your perspective? Definitely. I mean, I think there's definitely something to be said about the fact that I had, you know, kind of, I don't want to say the best of both worlds, um, definitely not the right wording, but, you know, I had the the privilege of experiencing somewhat of like a quote-unquote typical childhood like and I have a four-year age difference um and I for the first four years of my upbringing got to experience being you know the only child and a child that could be just kind of raised in this very like neurotypical able-bodied sense um, in a very traditional fashion that I think my parents had probably imagined since they weren't aware that they were eventually going to have a child with um, a significant disability. But with that being said, I mean, I also very much grew up <laughs> with a brother with a disability um, and it also observed and experienced my younger siblings and their journeys um, having been raised with my brother's needs along with their own. I think one of the main and most important things that comes to mind for a parent who is considering or approaching having a child after having a child with a disability? That was the question. Yes. Um, I think first off, just take a breath. It's going to be okay. It is going to, I'm speaking from the experience of being in a family where children were born before and after a child with a disability. Everyone is going to be loved everyone is going to be able to support each other. And I think a very important aspect of that 
for parents is recognizing that first off, you can't do everything. And even when it feels like you need to take on every single role you need to take on, best friend, perfect mother, perfect father, um, activist, teacher, therapist, you're doing your best and that is all you can do. But if you do not take time to decompress and process your own emotions and interact with your own relationships, you're not going to be able to be a sufficient and successful parent or figure for your child. Um, you need to recognize that you are human and as rewarding and valuable and beautiful as it is to have a child with a disability, just as it is with any child, if you don't take space and you don't find ways to decompress and process, and I think a very useful um, mechanism for that is, is therapy um, or just very strong friendships, just outlets outside of the family dynamic that allow you to express and decompress what you are living and experiencing on a daily basis. I think that is a really, really crucial way to be as loving and attentive as you can in your family. Um, that's definitely been my experience. I think the way that my parents have been so open about their own personal needs and the strength that they've had to take a step back, which hasn't been easy, um, but their strength and the work that they have put in to identify their own boundaries, I think has worked very much in favor um, within my family and helped them be present and attentive and not feel resentful or overwhelmed you know, when difficult things are coming up, I think that's really important. I think also just as a parent, I'm such an important thing. If you have more than one child and one of them has a disability is making sure that every child has the opportunity to pursue and experience their goals and their passions as deeply as they want to, it's definitely necessary that each child feels like they have room and individuality um, and agency. Um, I think sometimes, you know, space just inherently will be taken up because one child has more needs in a certain category, but that doesn't mean that there can't also be time and energy and love and space dedicated to the other children. And I think really just remembering that every child needs that nurturing. That's a really important thing just to keep in your mind as a parent who's raising several children and one of them has a disability. I think also just the normalizing, remembering that things don't have to be kept separate. Um, and that's not inferring that everyone needs to be striving to live within this like neurotypical able-bodied family dynamic timeline like that's not the goal but the goal is inclusion and making sure that each child you know feels like they have their individuality their space that they're appreciated that they're pursuing their goals that they're feeling loved that they are provided with the resources that they need to express their 
struggles and their passions and excitement and emotions, but also just that they feel close to their siblings and that they feel close to their parents. And I think, you know, making sure that there are a lot of environments of inclusion, um, whether that is in an academic, a social, a camp setting, a after school activity setting, or if it's also forms of therapy and quality time. Um, I think these are all really important aspects. I think quality time is super, super important. Um, making sure that the other children feel like they have their individual attention um, is, is super, super necessary. Um, but I think also just as I said in the beginning, pacing yourself and knowing that it's, it's not as scary as you think it's gonna be. And it's actually gonna be quite beautiful and touching and meaningful, um, but making sure that you take a step back to take care of yourself so that everyone can feel taken care of in return. I think those are all really important things. I am telling you, sitting here, listening to you, answering those questions just reminds me all over again, how mature and sophisticated and knowledgeable you are and what an evolved person is in the room right now. Thank you for, for doing this interview. I, I'm enlightened by this and learning so much from you. I have one last question, if you don't mind. <laughs> and, uh, I really, really appreciate uh, all your answers. It's been uh, mind-boggling, nothing <laughs> less than that. And uh, I want to ask you, what are your thoughts about inclusion of people with disabilities? And uh, how do you see our society as a whole when it comes to inclusion? Well. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I think we're trying. I think we're definitely trying. Um, I think inclusion, you know, it's defined in such a variety of ways by such a spectrum of disability activists. Um, whether that means that you yourself has, have a disability, that you are a sibling of an individual with a disability, a parent of an individual with a disability, I think that's, it's a very complicated and tense word because for some people, inclusion means fitting in people with disabilities into this very traditional schema that we have set up of milestones and education system and the professional workforce. Um, and for some people, it means completely stripping down and redefining how society functions and how we incorporate every identity into society. And also recognizing the intersectionality that appears, because it's not just disabilities, it's disabilities in queerness and race and ethnicity and religion and age and gender and sexuality and all of these really important um, concepts. It's not just one, but I definitely lean towards the second. <laughs> I definitely think that my goal with inclusion has always been to work so that everyone understands and respects each other's individual needs and that people feel like their needs can be met. Um, in a judgment-free and encouraging and supportive atmosphere. 
I think I've seen some really beautiful expressions of inclusion in my lifetime. And I've seen successful inclusion for sure. I mean, something that I always talk with my mother about. So I used to work at a summer camp. Um, it was a sleepaway camp and I specifically worked in the, I think it was the eight to 12 age group for children with a variety of disabilities. And it was in a camp that was majority neurotypical able-bodied children. And the camp was always kept a little bit separate. It was a little bit stigmatized. It was a little bit isolated. And there was always kind of this tension around whether the goal should be that there is no separate camp and everyone is just 100% together or whether this camp needed to operate in this separate atmosphere so that each child could get exactly what they needed. And both in specific ways are valid. You know, with, with my brother, for example, or with your daughter, you can't just have an environment where there are counselors who are undertrained, understaffed, uh, undereducated on how to treat children with disabilities, and then everyone is just in camp together. But you also shouldn't have an environment where it's like the secret, shadowy cave where all of the kids with disabilities go. No one hears from them, and just stories are told. And every once in a while, you can visit. That's not the goal either. And something, because I, I would always, you know, get stressed over this and talk to my mom and be like, I hate that there's this separation, but I also understand that we live in an imperfect world right now where this perfect inclusion can't be operating. And my mom would always say to me, Isla, you're not understanding. We've seen that world. We've seen that perfect inclusion. You were raised in that. You are, like your family is inclusion. You have seen how to be able-bodied and neurotypical and to love and support and protect and respect a person who has a disability in a judgment-free and uplifting zone. Um, and that is something that I've always appreciated. And it's reminded me that even if inclusion needs to be defined, and even if it means different things to different people, inclusion is completely possible. And if you come from an environment where you have been raised or deeply exposed to someone who has a disability, you can identify that it's not this scary, overwhelming theoretical idea that we're never gonna be able to achieve because you've seen it, you've experienced it. Um, and it's not perfect, it's not easy, but that's the reality of being human and of having different abilities. And that's not just disabilities, it's, it's queerness, it's mental health, it's gender. Like we see these forms of marginalization and these forms of ranging strengths and weaknesses and capabilities like in so many different areas of society and those are being actively worked on in a legal setting in an academic setting like we see this work taking place and i think inclusion in the form of like disability inclusion is completely possible um with all of that enthusiasm and optimism that i've described i will also say that I'm not satisfied with the type of inclusion that I have seen so far on a very minor scale. For example, when I was working with your daughter and new park was being built near your home um, and the park that had existed 
there that was supposed to be this inclusive, wonderful environment for each child to enjoy um, and for each child to be able to experience children like with a range of disabilities, including like, children in wheelchairs. Um, it was supposed to be this incredibly accessible park and it was not. And going there was so frustrating seeing how your daughter was not able to not even just inter like interact with the equipment that they provided there. It completely prohibited her from being able to express herself and mingle with other children because there were these physical barriers. I think that's a very clear example of just structures, literal structures, and also theoretical structures being set up that aren't inclusive. I think also another discrete area, because it's not only in these like very blunt, institutionally enforced areas, it's also in these everyday little setups. Like my brother has a disability where you can't read it physically as being a disability. And that prohibits him from receiving the same type of sensitivity as a lot of other children who have a range of disabilities experience, if you can see their disability, he reads as an able-bodied neurotypical individual who is a little bit socially awkward or who causes tantrums um, or who can be provocative if he is feeling insecure or threatened. And I think because of the fact that he reads as this neurotypical able-bodied child, he's met with a ton of ableism that is completely allowed and encouraged. Um, and people don't even understand that they are doing it, but I think that's a perfect example of how ableism is alive and well, because if you can't see it, then it is not excused. And I think that's definitely a really clear area of inclusion that needs to be worked on is redefining disability um, and redefining kindness and care and um, just, yeah, in inclusion. Um, I think, you know, in a, in a lot of different ways, there's a lot of work that has to be done. I think people need to be trained to overall, and this isn't just for disability rights. I think people need to be trained to be a lot more empathetic a lot more considerate um, and open with their hearts. Um, I think people need better education on what disabilities are. I think a lot of stereotypes and misconceptions need to be debunked. And it's not just acts of hate or anger or disrespect. It's also fetishization and dehumanization and turning these people that have complete agency or are deserving of full respect into babies or people that are incapable of experiencing emotions or logic or intelligence, which is so, so not true. The things, even just working with your daughter when I was like a sophomore, a junior in high school, I remember her challenging my views on religion without even being able to speak asking me these philosophical questions through her eye movements and through her Toby about the meaning of life and what God is and if God is even real. 
And if God is real, then why are injustices taking place? And we would get to these incredibly philosophical questions. And she's so much younger than me, but I was learning so much and going home and just having the biggest smile on my face or being on the verge of tears because I was so moved and affected by some of her um, incredible, just insightfulness. Um, but yeah, I think it's, we're not there in terms of inclusion. Some people are there, some communities are there, people are actively working. We need to be protesting, we need to be allocating funds to research and to education and to professional environments and group housing and in public schools, having children be exposed to children with disabilities, um, summer camp, we need proper training so that any child can be accessing any type of socialization or experience regardless of their ability. And that doesn't mean without the support that they require, but it means that with their specific needs, they are able to still experience life to the fullest. Also, not just children, just to clarify, even if you are 80 years old with Down syndrome, you deserve that same level of consideration and support and access to culture and work and love and respect and education. And I think, yeah, we're working on it and there's still a lot of work to be done. I'm optimistic and I think that inclusion is possible however you define it. Um, but as long as you are operating under the guidelines of inclusion, meaning support for everyone, and that support allowing access for everyone to feel loved and respected, um, given equal opportunities, I think everyone's on the same page and it's, it's possible and it's something that should actively be worked towards. Ayla, I have to say again, what an honor it is to sit here and to listen to you and to learn from you. Uh, I really, really hope and wish for the greater good of our society as a whole that you will continue to uh, work as an advocate and uh, to influence uh, society as a whole. You are incredible, knowledgeable, smart, uh, introspective, and it's, uh, it's been a, a pleasure to talk to you today and to spend all that quality time that our family got lucky enough to spend with you through your work with Karen. And uh, I really hope that people that are listening to this episode can, by virtue of listening to Ayla, understand what a, a privilege it is sometimes to grow up as a sibling to a child with a disability. Uh, Ayla, you're a true role model. Thank you very much. And I hope you'll come and visit us on this podcast again, maybe soon. <laughs> I would love to. Thank you so much for having me. Um, it's been so wonderful to talk with you and also just reflect on all of the wonderful um, and special aspects of, you know, being in this community. Um, you are so wonderful. And I think this podcast is the most incredible um, and loving gift that you could be giving to society um, and to so many parents and children and siblings and family members and friends and 
community members. It's, it's the most wonderful gift that you could be giving of education and support. So thank you for having me and you're doing such wonderful things here. Thank you. Thank you so much, Ayla. And thank you for everybody that was listening to us today in continuation of our discussion about siblings. If you guys have any questions uh, to Ayla or her mom, Alma, who's not here with us today, but has, uh, uh, I guess, some of the responsibility for this amazingly evolved person that we just met today. So uh, please don't hesitate to uh, comment, send us emails and let us know, and we'll be happy to get back to you with more information. Thank you and see you next time. Bye. For more information, please go to www.twomomsnofluff.com. Thank you. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and give it a five-star rating so more people can hear it. Thank you.